Our second scripture reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. You can find it at page 19 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. God of mercy, amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word to us this morning. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. A church member referred me to an article on the front page of last Monday's Marin IJ about Election stress. Yes, yes, indeed. Can I see a show of hands? The people who will be glad when this presidential election is over, even if you do care desperately about the outcome. So it's with some trepidation that I bring up politics, especially when many of us need a break, need a Sabbath from all the craziness and incivility. I'll do my best to land somewhere short of crazy and uncivil this morning. This fall, we're looking at the questions people have about their faith, and one common question is whether the church ought to be political. Political is in quotation marks because it can mean everything from elections to governing to anything to do with the use or abuse of power, and often what people really mean when they ask this question is, Should the church talk about things that make me uncomfortable? Oddly enough, some point to today's passage in Matthew as proof that God and politics should be kept separate. Others have cited this passage as proof that Jesus taught that our duty as Christians is to support the government no matter what. But something else is going on here. We're told from the outset that the Pharisees are are plotting to entrap Jesus. To do this, they join forces with an unlikely ally, the Herodians. This is one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situations. 
The Pharisees were highly observant Jews who despised Roman rule of their homeland. The Herodians, on the other hand, supported the Romans. They both want to get rid of Jesus, so they form a super pack. <laughs> the Pharisees ask Jesus whether it's lawful to pay taxes to the emperor, because either a yes or no answer will get Jesus in trouble. Roman taxes were not only an economic burden, they were a painful reminder of the Roman occupation. They could be paid only with Roman coins, most of which had an image of the emperor with inscriptions proclaiming him to be divine, a graven image that was both blasphemous and politically humiliating to the Jews. So a yes will discredit Jesus with the Jews and show him to be disloyal to God. A no will show him to be disloyal to the empire and he could be arrested for treason. Watch the master at work. Jesus asked to see the coin. Whose image is this, Jesus asks, and whose title? The coin, of course, bears Caesar's image. It belongs to Caesar. You can almost picture Jesus saying with a shrug, so give it back to him. In the King James, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Apparently, it isn't disobedient to God to pay taxes. Then the zinger, and give to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? The coin bore Caesar's image and belonged to Caesar. What is it exactly that bears God's image? We don't have to look in our purses or our pockets. Turn in the direction of the person sitting next to you this morning. Look at the people that you see at the grocery store, at work, at the gym, at school, and yes, even in the presidential debates, and you will see the image of God again and again. Human beings may pay taxes to the emperor, but we do not belong to the emperor. We bear the image of God. We belong to God. Jesus doesn't tell us that some things belong to Caesar's realm and some things belong to God's realm. The coin bore Caesar's image and so belonged to Caesar, except that, as the psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So the coin and even Caesar ultimately belong to God. God claims and embraces all life. So what do we get to give to God? That which is stamped with God's image our very selves, our very lives, not just part of ourselves, not just part of our lives. So what does that mean for our politics? It means that part of our lives, too, belongs to God. Our politics belong to God. And what does this mean for the church? Well, to begin with, Jesus is our model. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus himself was highly political in his ministry. Emily Dickinson wrote, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And sometimes, as here with the coin, Jesus told the truth slant. He wrapped the truth in a puzzle or a parable. Other times, he showed us, consorting with outcasts, treating women like full-fledged human beings, welcoming those who were on the margins. And still other times, he put it right out there. Jesus makes his public agenda perfectly clear. 
In Luke chapter 4, when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Jesus said, No one can serve both God and wealth. He told the parable of the sheep and the goats, which concludes, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And above all, he proclaimed the kingdom of God, which was good news for everybody here, now, in this life, not sometime after we die. In essence, Jesus said to his little colonized nation that refused to be tamed by the Romans, The time has come. Rethink everything. A radically new kind of empire has arrived, the empire of God. Believe this good news, follow me and my words, and enter into a new way of living. Don't get revenge, seek reconciliation. Don't focus on conforming to moral codes, but be transformed by love. Don't hate or fear outsiders, but welcome them. Don't live for wealth, but for God. Don't hate your enemies, but love them. So the Reformed tradition, in which the Presbyterian Church has its roots, has a long history of political activism aimed at helping God transform God's world to look more like the kingdom of God. John Calvin wrote, We are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against God, let us not pay the least regard to it. This implied permission to throw off tyrants meant Presbyterians were key players in the American Revolution, which King George III called that Presbyterian Rebellion. The only clergy person to sign the Declaration of Independence was a Presbyterian, John Witherspoon. The Presbyterian Church doesn't see faith as private or otherworldly, and so in the Reformed tradition, we do preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, some would say the Church should help the poor and the oppressed through charity, but not through the political system. There's an old story about a small village on the edge of a river. One day, a villager noticed a man floating down the river. The villager quickly jumped into the river, swam out to save the man from drowning, and the man was injured, and the villager treated his wounds. The next day, other villagers saw two people floating down the river, and they rescued them and treated their wounds. The following day, it was four people, and then eight, and then more, and still more. The villagers organized themselves, setting up watchtowers and training teams of swimmers to rescue the people from the river. Rescue squads worked 24 hours a day, but each day the number of floating injured people increased. One day, however, someone raised the question, where are all these people coming from? Who's throwing them in the river and why? Who's hurting them? Let's organize a team to go upstream and see what's going on. A village elder said, but if we go upstream, who will operate the rescue? We need need every concerned person here. 
And the other villager replied, but don't you see, if we find out what's causing this, we can stop it. We have to go upstream. To help God bring about the kingdom of God, we have to go upstream. We have to address the causes of poverty, the causes of oppression, the suffering around us. We must participate in the political process. Our Friday night rest shelter starts up in a couple of weeks. Eight years ago, before we could get it going, Joy Snyder and I had to go before the San Anselmo Town Council to get approval. That's the political process. We advocate through the, for the hungry through Bread for the World, whose mission isn't to hand out food, but to change policy. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, has an office in Washington, D.C. that lobbies Congress. We also have a big fat book of social witness policies adopted by our General Assembly on everything from gun violence to racism to abortion to capital punishment to LGBTQ rights. Ours is a faith that goes upstream. Now, in any discussion of church and politics, someone inevitably wonders about the separation of church and state implied by the First Amendment of the Constitution. The First Amendment restricts governments, not churches. It says Congress can't establish a religion, it can't make any religion the official religion the way that the Anglican Church is the State Church of England. The courts interpret this to mean that the government can't do anything to promote any particular religion or religion in general, so no nativity scenes on public property, no prayer in schools. The First Amendment also says Congress can't get in the way of religious practices. The government can't require Jews to work on Saturdays or Jehovah's Witnesses to salute the flag. Essentially, the government can step in only if a religious practice is dangerous to health or safety. If your religion says throwing rocks off a cliff gives glory to God, the government won't stop you. But if you try to throw your pastor off the cliff, it will. <laughs> the First Amendment allows churches to advocate for political change, but not to replace the secular government with a faith-based government. Our Presbyterian ancestors fought for this. Simply put, if someone says, I can't do that, it's against my religion, that's fine. That's religious freedom. But if someone tries to say, you can't do that, it's against my religion, the First Amendment will put a stop to it. Churches can't campaign for candidates running for office, but not because we're the church, but because we want to maintain our tax-free status as a nonprofit under the tax code. This restriction applies to all nonprofits. But we can and we must speak up, speak out, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God in relation to the issues that the candidates raise or fail to raise. While some might say that the church should confine itself to people's personal problems, the issues raised by the candidates are about people's personal problems. If you don't have medical care or housing or a living wage, if you're afraid of being deported or stopped by the police, it's personal. 
So, for example, last Sunday, the Reverend Shannon J. Kirshner at the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago took on a very personal issue that is political that the, has been raised by the campaigns. She took a new look at Jesus' parable of the persistent widow and the unresponsive judge. The judge finally gives in to the widow, gives her the justice for which she's pleading, simply to make her stop asking and go away. Kirshner said, maybe we've got it all wrong about which character in this parable is supposed to be God. Maybe we are the judge, and God is speaking through the widow, persistently urging and pleading to us for justice and compassion. And then she tied that intriguing suggestion to the matter of sexual aggression, exploitation, and the abuse of women. Without mentioning either candidate by name, she said that God wants our culture, wants our culture's acceptance of sexual aggression and abuse to stop, and wants us all to speak up about it. She said, I cannot go, I cannot go along to get along or let my fear of upsetting some of you keep me from testifying, testifying against the daily dismissals and denials of the myriad of ways in which women and those who identify as female regularly encounter aggression against our bodies and against our souls. It starts young and it does not stop. I believe God is persistently asking me, persuading me, to not just let this one go unchecked anymore. Too much is at stake for me to remain silent and for the church to remain silent. She continued, Furthermore, the Friday before the second presidential debate took place, writer Kelly Oxford wrote on Twitter about her first experience of sexual assault and asked other women to share their stories in response. Within one evening, she had received one million responses. One million responses. I know from personal experience that we are not making this up. And I will add my own personal affirmation of that. It is not about locker room banter or letting boys be boys. It is about a demeaning and a dismissing of our full, God-created, God-given humanity and a passive acceptance of our female bodies as public property. Too much is at stake for any of us to remain silent. We who are called into the church, the body of Christ, are called to speak out, stand up, to advocate, to be political on behalf of all those who bear God's image, which is everybody. Because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it the world, and those who live in it. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.